Hello and welcome to the Psychomedia Podcast. I am Timothy Swan. And I am Ben Fell, not talking in a ridiculously hesitant manner. And together, we are going to discuss the funny side of psychology for the first time in a while. I was going to say, it's been it's been too long, Ben. It's been too long, you know, Tim. We've been apart for too long, and we definitely didn't speak to each other last night. <laughs> no, well, we, yeah, I mean, it was mainly yelling about how, like, the internet is broken and, and playing games online is awful, but, uh, yeah. The same as every week, really. The same as every week. What are we going to do this week, Tim? Uh, we're going to blast into 2012 oh. with an episode that is all about joy, happiness. Uh, well, not really. Those are more specific topics. We wanted a happy thing. We wanted a thing that was almost Christmassy because maybe we were going to do this a little <laughs> earlier in time. Just maybe. <laughs> like, we have plans and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. What we're also going to begin the year with is you missing a perfectly good opportunity to make a pinky and perky reference. But never mind. We gloss over that. Yeah, I avoid it because it always ends up with me. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the point being, we're going to talk about altruism, good people doing good things. Or not, um, as the case may be. Well, yes, it's a bit of a, a topic in psychology that a lot of people are acquainted with. We're hopefully going to uh, throw some new light on it. Um, For a subject which is ostensibly about people being nice, there is an awful lot of electric shocking people involved. But uh, uh, that surprises me not at all. Psychology. It's a social psychological topic. Twas ever thus. Anyway. Yes. Um, so we're going to be quick and punchy with our feedback section on account of the fact that all you guys are still listening to like episode seven. So uh, this hello, February 2012 <laughs> from the future. But yes. So um, the person known as Dean, who I talked about on the previous episode, who has been going through commenting on episodes uh, as she listens, uh, had a pretty brilliant comment that she wrote. She said, Exactly at the part, half a teacup full of brain. <laughs> this is from the uh, Phineas Gage episode. Oh, yes. I was in the process of eating a formerly lovely tasting cracker with melted cheese upon it. <laughs> Psychomedia, ruining your meals since 2011. Excellent. Good. I think that's our new tagline. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. You don't have anything too bad this week, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. No, that's. I don't think so. I mean, there's there's no there's no gribbly bits this week, to my knowledge. Well, I, I can't think of anything. It depends if you've seen, seen the new uh, Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes or not. Um, but if you if you haven't, which you people probably haven't, then uh, then there's no gribbly bits. OK, you're not going to be talking about Stephen Fry, are you? <laughs> um, maybe a little. Just a, li honest, a little bit of Stephen Fry. I'll be talking about a little bit of Stephen Fry. All right. Well, I was thinking of it anyway. <laughs> um, yeah. Just quickly to know, there are a couple of uh, new similar podcasts oh. uh, from last fm one is called srp3 krista it's a swedish radio show on swedish oh. like a mainstream swedish radio awesome uh one called shift run stop who interview cool geeky people a lot more famous than us so that's kind of nice um in 16th place of the people similar to us the acts similar to us can you guess which comedy duo would you say we were the most similar to of all the comedy duos that come up they are the first Do can you guess who it is the answer may surprise you it, um like john oliver and andy's ultimate aren't allowed i presume i don't think they are as high as this one surprisingly i guess well maybe mitchell and webb no not mitchell and webb older oh it's not it's not um our nemeses is it it's not leon herring no older even than them oh lauren hardy uh younger <laughs> but not by much okay we're narrowing this down can we can we skip to the end it was the two Ronnies. <laughs> right. Because we have previously been compared to Laurel and Hardy. 
Really? By who? I thought that was uh, wasn't that my supervi- uh, that supervisor in uh, undergrad, or was that something else? Um, I don't remember being compared to Laurel and Hardy so much as just for a long time just being called by your name and you being called by my name, <laughs> and then we would have these real temptations to keep swapping seats and stuff. <laughs> um, anyway, which I think we did do one week. We did, and it caused a great deal of confusion. Thankfully, given he's now my PhD supervisor, he has finally managed to work it out. Um, well, that. So yeah, Ben, would you like to buy any hardware off me? <laughs> uh, no. Uh, Good. Oh, and I'd just like to say a quick thanks to Kiha for being so nicely interested in the story I read out last week. So yeah, there's one guy who's up to date at least. Uh, yeah, I'm audience. looking forward to that. I I don't know what you did last week, but from what you've been <laughs> saying about it on Twitter, I'm deeply concerned. <laughs> there's nothing too bad in there. <laughs> it's not that racist sexually weird or uh you know self-indulgent so what you're saying is that i am the catalyst to all of those horrible things that happen on this podcast <laughs> and when you're left to your own devices it's all very virtuous and clean i tell you what i'm a lot, lot less animated when you're not here <laughs> i'm very kind of just like calm because i'm pacing myself because i think oh i've got to do 40 minutes on my own i can't rely on just conversation with ben ah. so <laughs> i just kind of was speaking slowly as if i were playing just a minute i see um well so yeah that's all of the people saying things at us hooray in the feedback that's probably the fastest feedback session we've ever done i know i'm going to try and get quicker and quicker and quicker and quicker (laughs) yes so uh what have you done this week tim what have I done this week? Well, this week, not so much. I saw some of this my family. <laughs> exactly. Well, there was Christmas and there was New Year's and that was all nice. Well, I didn't do much on New Year's Eve because I had work in the uh, morning and also New Year's Eve is quite boring. But Christmas was very nice and I got some n- nice presents, uh, including Battlestar Galactica, the board game, the Pegasus expansion, <laughs> which I finally managed to play sometime before the, oh, actually over the New Year period. Nice. Um, and humans won which was good because i was a human but very closely like it was very close to cylons winning that's pretty awesome Um, it's a great game the tension the like psychological tension involved is just brilliant it's really fun you get really into it in a way that like if you play a game of monopoly or other kind of long board games you tend to just get resentment and anger (laughs) whereas it's more emotional than that in Battlestar Galactica. So that was a great present. Um, I've got a Doctor Who one, but I haven't, which I spoke about last week, uh-huh. uh, but I haven't played it yet, so I don't know how, how good it is. Mm. Uh, well, obviously I had... Oh, and, and I forgot, I forgot. Also, Ben, you bought me some nice presents. Uh, I bought you a nice present, didn't I? Or was there more? I think you bought me Magic of the Stars Are Left as a pre-Christmas present. Oh, yeah. Um, um, and, and then bought me Skyrim as the, uh, the main Christmas present. Because I, so, I, I desire you to lose your job. <laughs> well, yeah, basically. It's like, I've got The Old Republic. I just finished Portal 2, which is a very short game, but then I bought L.A. Noir with some Christmas money. Cool. So three games that are my current up-to-date games, Skyrim, L.A. Noir, and The Old Republic. Excellent. Well, if, I suppose if you do lose your job, then it gives us more time to play computer games and record podcasts. So this is <laughs> me being highly non-altruistic. This is an ex- would have made a brilliant labored, belabored segue into the uh, topic, but unfortunately, uh, tradition dictates that I have to tell you things that I've done this week. Well, you must have been doing something. Well, yeah, I mean, there has been, there was the, the whole matter of flying to America and back, uh, which we briefly covered a little bit while I was there. I'm not sure how well that came out. Um, that was me wandering around the house, waving a tablet in front of my face. Uh, America was really fun. It was like 
as like big and stuff um, while we were out there. So this also ties into the what what have I done this week tradition of films. Uh, I saw the new Sherlock, the new Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes, um, and that was going to be my uh, my films this week was like that and the BBC Sherlock Holmes, which I've just watched the other night. Uh, both of which were really, really good fun. Um, I have to say, on balance, I preferred the nudity in the BBC version uh, than in the Guy Ritchie version, um, for reasons which will become apparent when it comes out in the UK. There's, you, you see, a, you see a lot of Stephen Fry, and there is a lot of Stephen Fry. He's a very tall man. Um, <laughs> they were clearly struggling to come up with props big enough to make it whatever it was, 12A rated or whatever. Um, but that came out really, really... That didn't come out the way I intended. But anyway, I'm just going to move on from that. Um, I'm busy thinking about which of us is uh, Laurie and which of us is Fry, to be honest. I have this suspicion that I'm Fry. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure we've... We don't have much in common, except that we're both Oxbridge-educated. Yeah, that's it, really, isn't it? Uh, yes. I don't know. How good is your American accent? Uh, abysmal. Although it okay. improves when I'm in America, it turns out. <laughs> Although I well, maybe that's what happened with uh, Hugh Laurie. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> he wasn't even meaning to. Um, but yeah, and I had a really nice Christmas and a really nice uh, New Year. I have a swanky new second monitor for my desk. Uh, so, like, the organization level of the podcast should nominally increase because I'll be able to have, like, <laughs> studies open to my left and things. In practice, I mean, this week it's certainly not going to increase because I did almost all the preparation for this in the last hour and a half um yeah life's like that sometimes <laughs> it's my fault yes yes what yes isn't? it is um but anyway that's that's pretty much it i don't think i did anything staggeringly interesting i did have a fun new year's because it involved a party and copious quantities of alcohol um and even dancing god forbid um which is not a common occurrence but yeah it was awesome um read bbc sherlock uh, Benedict Cumberbatch has just replaced Benicio del Toro in the Star Trek. I saw cast. that. That is very exciting. Given that it was Benicio del Toro, everyone thought it was going to be Khan as the villain. I'd quite like to see Benedict Cumberbatch play Khan, just because it's completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I don't know. I I was I also watched Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy again on the flight back from America, and mm. uh, just you know drinking up his lovely uh, lovely silky voice silky smooth voice i could listen he's another one of these people that you could just listen to ad nauseum except there wouldn't be any nauseum ad infinitum yeah um so yeah should we like do some psychology stuff yeah i i just can't see how we can get there oh yeah it's, uh, it's kind of the the burden of it is on me given that i'm starting so altruism had- there's a thing or maybe not what is this altruism you speak of? <laughs> your, Perhaps you could explain it to me. <laughs> your cold, unfeeling, inhuman mind cannot comprehend such things. Well, speaking of Benedict Cumberbatch, <laughs> we have the cold, well, unfeeling, inhuman mind. Exactly. There's, there's our truly belaboured segue. Excellent. Good start to 2012. Um, we sidestep oh, the good. obvious and useful segue and crowbar in a less suitable one. Um, so altruism, um, as it is studied in I mean, there's lots of ways that you can study altruism, I guess. I mean, okay, maybe there's not. Okay, it's psychology and philosophy are the two ways that you can study altruism. Um, and both of them are difficult and both of them are complicated. Because what we're talking about here is 
true altruism, as in, do we, as humans, possess the capacity to act in a fundamentally unselfish way, solely for the benefit of another person, with no expectation of reward? Um, or the alternative view is that even what might outwardly seem to be a benevolent act, uh, you know, a selflessly generous act, will always eventually be underpinned by self-serving desires. Uh, it's a very complex question, and it's very difficult to answer, because, for example, uh, what if we may not be always consciously aware of what our motivations uh, are, which seems fairly likely, given what we know from the rest of psychology? Um, how do we, as psychologists, decide what constitutes true altruism when, you know, the participants in question may not be aware of whether they're being truly altruistic or not? Um, the problem is that despite all these kind of ambiguous grey areas, the, the overriding question is, is altruism real? Is altruism a thing? And that lends itself very easily to a dichotomous answer, I yes it is or no it isn't. Um, and as we all know from previous topics, such as mental imagery, uh, memory, and uh, all our favourite names, you know, Coslin, Polishin, Buckley, Squire, um, when psychologists are presented with a dichotomous question, they tend to rise to the occasion by having a massive slagging match. Um, <laughs> weirdly, this doesn't seem to have happened with altruism. Um, I mean, the researchers are pretty much split into two camps along the lines of, yes, altruism is a thing, or no, altruism isn't a thing. But they've actually sort of comported themselves with remarkable professionalism whilst being entirely split. Um, Say what now? I know, and it's particularly surprising because... Given given how close any discussion of you know the existence of altruism, it sort of always inevitably comes down to a debate over whether humans are fundamentally decent or not, which you think would get some people slightly het up, but it doesn't seem to. Um, from which you can only conclude that the researchers in question are all cold and unthinking, unfeeling, <laughs> not unthinking. Um, so. In order to reflect this, I think in this podcast, we have a responsibility not to fall into the trap of false dichotomies and oversimplification, even if it were for comic effect. However, <laughs> I didn't have very long to prepare this week because I spent too long playing Star Wars. So I've decided to refer to the two sides of the debate as good and evil, um, just for speed. Um so in the good corner, arguing for the existence of true altruism and thus wielding the shiny blue lightsaber of fundamental human decency, we have a guy called C. Daniel Batson. Uh, C. Daniel Batson holds doctorates from Princeton in both psychology and theology. Um, because he wanted two useless degrees instead of one. Um, <laughs> he is renowned for his contribution to the psychology of religion, particularly in de developing the controversial theory of religion as a quest – which we will definitely need to talk about some other time. Oh, yeah, um, that's actually a thing I've heard of. And his primary contribution to the study of altruism is the so-called altruism empathy hypothesis, which states that feeling empathy for a person in need evokes motivation to help that person, in which these benefits to self are not the ultimate goal of helping, they are unintended consequences. Uh, so, the, yeah, in summary, we help people because we empathise with them, and this is what altruism is. Um, then, if we're, I'm reading from my notes here, 
If we look across the lava pit of scientific discourse to the evil corner, we find <laughs> Robert Cialdini equipped with the red lightsaber of inevitable human selfishness, who argues that there is no such thing as a truly selfless act. Now, uh, Robert Cialdini is the Regents, profess Regents Professor Emeritus of Psychology and Marketing at Arizona State University, which should set alarm bells ringing straight away. <laughs> His best-selling book, Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion, has sold over two million copies. And according to Wikipedia, um, as research for his book, this book, he went undercover in used car dealerships, fundraising organizations, and telemarketing firms, which perhaps explains why he has no faith in fundamental human decency. <laughs> um, and as a result of this research, he came up with six key principles uh, for, of uh, marketing and psychology. Uh, and these principles were... Uh, one, peace is a lie, there is only passion. <laughs> Two, through passion I gain strength. Three, through strength I gain power. Four, through strength I gain victory. Five, through victory my chains are broken. And six, the force shall free me. <laughs> yes, I committed to that joke. <laughs> Uh, for, for, for those of you who aren't fans of specifically the Knights of the Old Republic series <laughs> part of Star Wars, that is the Sith Code. Um, that is their mantra. <laughs> I'm really pleased. I didn't think I'd see the day when you would be explaining one of my jokes. Um, wow, 2012 has really turned everything upside down. It's almost as if it was the end of the world. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't mean to be like jumping on an XKCD joke, but we're not going to talk anything about Mayans unless we're talking about playing Age of Empires 2, the Conqueror's expansion, <laughs> which we're not. Unfortunately, because that was awesome. Anyway, so um, I think this is pretty much where I finish talking about Star Wars and start talking about psychology. So we've got these these two um, combatants, if you will, in the debate for the existence of altruism. Uh, arguing for altruism, we have Batson, and being the uh, proposition, uh, I think traditional debating uh, dictates that he should go first. So, um, <laughs> in my notes, I've written Batson et al. 1981, shocking evidence for altruism. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, once again, I've just discovered the way that I can avoid committing to the awful jokes I make during preparation is by saying that I made them during preparation. Wow, you really are a regular Stuart Lee, aren't you? I'm a very irregular Stuart Lee. Um, <laughs> I don't need to know about that part of your <laughs> Only on weekends. <laughs> so, Batson has this empathy-altruism hypothesis, which basically states that altruism does exist, and it occurs when you feel empathy for another person. And he has supported it with evidence, because he is a psychologist, and the evidence he has supported it with is good psychology, because it involves electric shocks. And you Hooray. guys playing the drinking game know the rules. Electric shocks, take a shot. Um, what do you take a shot of? Isn't there a drink that has some kind of... There's aftershock. I guess you could drink that. You could. You probably should. Um, so his first study, as I mentioned, was done in 1981 uh, relating to this, and it involved 44 female psychology students who were told that they would be doing a study with another student um, called Elaine, who was actually a confederate. Um, they were told that either they or Elaine would be randomly chose to chosen to perform a task under aversive conditions which, as we all know, means being repeatedly shocked. Uh, the unshocked participant would then just have to sit and watch this macabre affair. Um, so after being told this and filling out some questionnaires, uh, Elaine was inevitably chosen to receive the shocks, uh, and the participants were taken to another room where they could observe this over 
ostensibly over closed circuit television, which was actually just a video. Uh, in the study, Elaine is described as a moderately attractive young woman. I'm not entirely sure how that is relevant, but Batson seems to feel the need to point it out. Um, <laughs> He's being nice to her. She wasn't really, but Batson's such a nice guy. Is saying someone is moderately attractive being nice to them, or is it sort of like damning with faint praise? I'm not sure. It's a very backhanded compliment, <laughs> it is. really, isn't it? <laughs> She's I take not it. particularly ugly. Um, <laughs> Uh, so yeah, uh, they sat in this room and they watched the video and the video shows, uh, Elaine coming into the room and receiving instructions from the experimenter who says that although the shocks will be uncomfortable, they won't be anything more than you'd get from like a static discharge from a carpet or something. Um, and then they begin the experiment and Elaine receives two shocks, uh, which clearly cause her a great deal of discomfort, you know, from facial expression. She's also hooked up to uh, a galvanic skin response thing, which participant can see the, in quotes, output from. And according to that and everything, she's clearly very, very upset. Um, so after the second shock, the experimenter seems concerned and asks her if she's all right and then goes to get her a glass of water. Uh, and when they come back, uh, Elaine reveals the fact that she had been thrown onto an electric fence by a horse as a child. Um, that is the horse threw her onto the fence not that the fence was near the horse although there probably was near the horse at least near enough for the horse to throw her onto the fence anyway it was essentially she is experiencing horse and or shock related post-traumatic stress disorder um and so the experimenter uh quite rightly says we should stop the experiment um at which point it's, it's a wonderful kind of little little script they've got right here out here they must have had great fun filming it um, Elaine then puts on a stoic expression and sniffs bravely and says, I think we should go on. Specifically, I started it. I want to finish. I'll go on. I know your experiment is important and I want to do it. Um, which is perhaps the least believable part of the study that any participant would say that. But um, anyway, she's clearly just that good a person. Um, and then the experimenter has a bright idea and suggests that the participant might want to swap with Elaine and take her place for as many trials as they felt they could, you know, to take the sh take the shocks for Elaine. And this is basically the extent of the experiment. They recorded how uh, if participants were inclined to uh, replace Elaine and how many shocks they were prepared to take and took this as a quite a reasonable index of... Uh, altruism. It's a, it seemed, it's a fairly clearly altruistic act. Um, and what they were interested in was the, the kind of modifying variables on this. What uh, properties of the situation led participants to be more or less likely to behave altruistically? So they had two manipulations. The first of which was how similar the participant felt uh, towards Elaine. Um, so this was their empathy manipulation. How, how close to them how close to Elaine the participants felt. And the way they manipulated this was uh, they initially gave participants a, a questionnaire about fairly kind of minor things like magazine preference for like Cosmo, Cosmopolitan or Time magazine. Um, and then they presented the participant with some information about Elaine where, although it wasn't identical, it was, you know, of a similar theme. So, you know, I don't know, Tim, what's a similar magazine to Cosmo? Uh, I don't know, new woman in the UK, I guess. I ask you for your expertise I, on these matters. I love those magazines because they're just, the front pages are so ridiculous. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so yes, let's say let's say the participant chose Cosmo, then Elaine is would have chosen new woman according to Tim. Um, and then the second uh, variable that they manipulated was escape difficulty, um, in which the participants were uh, locked in a box with a chain, or or put in an open field. No, they. Um, <laughs> I wish. I wish. Uh, essentially, they uh, in the easy escape condition, participants only had to watch the first two trials of the study uh, and then they were allowed to go so they could just leave Elaine to her fate very easily. Whereas in the uh, difficult escape condition, they had to sit through the whole course in the instructions, that is. Um, and the results are very, very clear. Um, in the dissimilar easy condition, that is where the participants didn't feel empathy towards Elaine and it was very easy for them to escape, only 18% of them uh, offered to replace her uh when they were dissimilar but it was difficult to escape 64 percent uh opted to help so that's kind of good um when they were similar though uh in the difficult condition 82 percent helped and in the easy condition 91 percent of people opted to help her out so given that those numbers are quite high i mean in general these people seem relatively altruistic um and it is quite clear that empathy is the major factor in encouraging people to do this um, sure yeah so this seems this seems fairly good evidence for the this empathy altruism hypothesis however the uh the evil sith cialdini uh and his colleagues do not accept this as being evidence for altruism they argue that uh, the participants in Batson's study weren't being altruistic, but rather uh, the experience of having to watch a moderately attractive girl being electrocuted made them sad, and they wanted to not be sad, so they tried to stop her being electrocuted. The Different to how I feel. Bastards. Um, he's, so basically, he suggests. I'm glad you said that and covered up my terribly, terribly wrong joke there. <laughs> <laughs> so am I, because I didn't hear it. Um, we, we cover up awful jokes with swearing. This is a good feeding. <laughs> <laughs> it, it perfectly matches your and my respective talents. <laughs> um, so uh, Cialdini is suggesting that empathy, empathy for someone just makes you feel more sad when you see them in distress. And therefore, you have a greater motivation to help them because you want to stop yourself feeling that much sadness. Um now, this seems a bit fuzzy, but it makes uh, as a hypothesis. But he actually tested it in a very cool and insightful way, I think. Um, basically, he gave participants a drug which he assured them would stop their uh, would kind of lock their emotional state in place. So if they were sad, they would stay sad for a set period of time. And if they were happy, they would stay happy, etc. Um, they called the drug uh, nemoxetine. M-N-E-M-O-X-E-T-I-N-E, nemoxetine, um, which was obviously a placebo. Um, you know it was a placebo because according to the experimenters, it only had two effects, dry mouth and the locking of emotional states. Now, anyone <laughs> with even a cursory knowledge of pharmacology knows that at the very least they should have like diarrhea and hallucinations as well as that because just that's not the way drugs work. But anyway... Um, they were given a 15cc 
glass of tonic water and told that this would cause them dry mouth and a locked emotional state. Um, so the, the specific design of the experiment was the participants had to initially uh, carry out what was termed a memory exercise, but was actually mood induction. They were asked to recall either happy or sad memories. And the participants who were asked to recall mad, mad memories, mad memories uh, recall sad memories, were there, would, the implication being that they would be sad and then they would be given this drug so that they would think that their sad mood was not going to be able to change. Obviously, the people in the happy condition uh, thought that they were going to stay happy, and those in the who were not given the drug were perfectly, you know, knew that their uh, emotional state could change. Um, after they'd done this memory exercise, uh, a confederate barged into the exam room and started asking for volunteers to help making calls to blood donors, um, which was their arbitrarily chosen manipulation of, you know, opportunity for altruism. Um, participants were asked if they would make any calls and if so how many um, and this was the index of how altruistic they were feeling and Cialdini's results basically showed um, as he would have predicted that uh, participants who didn't think that their sad mood was able to change were significantly less likely to offer assistance and offer to make calls for this for this charitable organization than those in the other conditions um, so this, you know, this is fairly, I mean, the, the important thing I think is that it's a, it's a neatly, uh, put together study and it does seem to contradict what Batson was saying. Unfortunately for Cialdini, it hasn't been replicated very well. For example, okay. there's a study by Schroeder et al, 1988, which uses pretty much exact same, um, uh, paradigm is Cialdini, but also includes um, Batson's um, things about empathy and uh, ease of escape. And they replicate the effects of empathy and ease of escape as being, you know, uh, significant. But the kind of the memory locking didn't have any effect whatsoever. Um, it's important not to confuse Schroeder with Schrodinger, uh, although it does allow you to make the joke that Schroeder's cat is what happens when you put a cat in a box with some poison, and then the other cats will only help that cat if they like the same magazines. <laughs> uh, which also, yeah, sorry, you're going to have to suffer through this, Always also made me think of Louis Roderera's cat, uh, which is where you put a cat in a box with some poison, only to find that when you open the box, the cat has escaped and drunk all your expensive champagne. <laughs> I couldn't think of anyone else who had a name that sounded like Schrodinger, so you, uh, you've dodged that particular bullet. Um, so, <laughs> or have I? There's only one way to find out. <laughs> um, Observation. So yeah, this is. I mean, these these studies are just sort of exemplars of how the debate as to the existence of altruism has been carried out. There are a lot more. I mean, these are done in the uh, early 80s, and they have been at it since then. Basically, they're still publishing today. Uh, I th I'm pretty sure they're both still alive. I can check my wonderful dual screen uh, thingy. Yes, they're both still... Well, it doesn't say on Wikipedia that they're dead, so they're still presumably pumping out studies. <laughs> um, and it does seem to follow this pattern of, you know, Batson presents a study which clears up some of the uh, ambiguities about his uh, empathy altruism hypothesis. And then Cialdini and his colleagues will come back with a study which seems to show a situation in which, you know... Um, 
people are behaving unequivocally selfishly and then Batson will come back with another one where he clears up those things and it sort of goes back and forth and back and forth. Um, for my money, the evidence seems... It, it doesn't seem that Cialdini has yet been able to conclusively disprove the existence of altruism, but that raises the kind of interesting question of who, on whom is the burden of proof? Should yeah. should we really be... Sh- who, who... Yeah... Are we sort of accepting the premise of altruism existing and trying to disprove it, or are we, you know, are we saying that it's the the job is for Batson to prove that people are behaving altruistically, which I think is a much harder thing to do, because, yeah. you know, well, it's a much harder thing to do. <laughs> and is it altruistic if you do it because you empathise with someone? Because you say, oh well, if they are they help in all of the conditions but they help more when they empathize based on magazine choice you think oh that's interesting that's fine but if you say oh they help in all conditions but they help a lot more when they're in the same ethnicity condition Mm. which for example is a result that you can get yeah that sounds a little more awkward about the existence of altruism well yeah it's weird you get it it comes back to the uh, glib comment made at the beginning that a study of altruism involves an awful lot of electric shocks you he's Altruism obviously has implications of being like a purely positive and very nice, good thing to do. That doesn't necessarily mean it. I mean, Batson is in no way suggesting that people are always altruistic or even that some people are always altruistic. Although he has done a lot of stuff on, you know, altruism, people with altruistic personalities. He's saying that it it is possible under certain very specific conditions that people will behave altruistically. Um which, yeah, is, you know, a, a very reasonable position to have. I think if anyone arguing that people are always fundamentally good is, well, frankly, stupid, um, because no one is. Um, so I'm not sure why I'm yeah, making the point. It's not hard, is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's really, is it? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting debate. And, uh, yes, also worth, worth lauding these people for the fact that they don't appear to have devolved into mudslinging just yet. Um, which should well, be commended among psychologists. Yes, congratulations to them. Um, shall I look at some specific facets of altruism? That would Perhaps. be fascinating. Yes, it would. Sorry, I just thought I'd leave a little silence that we can all mourn. <laughs> I think that is entirely appropriate. Can you put the tumbleweed sound in there? <laughs> we don't have a tumbleweed sound. We don't have a soundboard. The soundboard we have, okay, is just my keyboard, so I can do angry train noises like this. Very silent angry train. Oh, did that not really work? Oh, uh, actually, no, I can't do that. I got a present for Christmas which la- uh, makes loud noises um, in a like an alarm sound, but unfortunately it also has a lot of swearing on it, so I'm... Bang goes that soundboard too. I can play the harmonica uh. like I did a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, but that just is like a... Isn't that a TMS coin? <laughs> yeah, we've used up that one possible sound effect. Is now Exactly, in the context coil. of the show. People will get confused if we start using the harmonic of things other than a TMS coil. I suppose you could play a different note. <laughs> but that just means it's a different frequency of TMS coil, Tim. <laughs> God's sake, oh. up. Anyway, anyway, so yeah, um... What we've looked at is, you know, the reasons that precipitate 
uh, altruism. I'm going to look at some of the consequences of altruism now, uh, especially on the chemical side. Of course, we've talked about the chemical side of uh, emotion and how that doesn't have to take away from the validity of emotion. And in a way, that's a philosophical question about levels of detail. But regardless of whether you think that having chemical consequences affects altruism, it is interesting to see what a positive impact altruism, gift giving and that sort of thing mm. can have at a chemical level. Uh, so I'll start with some neurotransmitters because uh, we all love uh, neurotransmitters. We do. And uh, as I was thinking about neurotransmitters, I was thinking about popular psychology, which is us, right? We're popular, lots of friends. Um, <laughs> we are statistically pop popular. <laughs> popular psychology uh, focuses right in on things like serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin. Uh, and who I feel really sorry for are uh, glutamate and GABA. Uh, they're the chemicals in 90% of the synapses in the brain. But because the little celebrity ones can have a big impact, it means they get forgotten. This is true. So I'm just suggesting about six months after this joke was topical <laughs> that GABA and glutamate should occupy the brain. They are the 90 percent. Um, I knew that that was that where that was going. I was like, oh, I'll make a joke about the 99 percent. Oh, wait, no, no, no. <laughs> Winter kind of ruined the whole occupying outdoor places thing, didn't it? <laughs> Even the ridiculously mild winter we've just had. Occupy anyway, the uh, perirhinal cortex. <laughs> Uh, research into the area of the neurotransmitter effects of uh, altruism has been funded by the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love. <laughs> That's not a ridiculous joke. Though. That is a true fact. Um, <laughs> without wishing to be too cynical about human nature at the time of goodwill and uh, people making new starts, I would say this is an overambitious project. <laughs> well, you say that, but as a random aside, uh, I did a search on the bps um research digest for things about altruism and one of the studies that came up was that mentioning the word loving um in a uh, in like a, a request in doubles the amount of charitable donations that people make oh that's interesting so that's even, very interesting even if like infinite love doesn't exist then it is at the very least an extremely efficient prime well, I'll have to send that to their rivals at the uh, Institute for Research on Conditional and Rather Distant Love. <laughs> but those guys aren't that popular or pleasant to be with. <laughs> Incidentally, I would be quite interested in the interview process to work at the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love. <laughs> you know, also, Institute. Institute is a kind of word that doesn't say unlimited love. I mean, it's, you know, better, should it be like the, it could, it's better than the institution for unlimited love. <laughs> yeah, that's basically 1984. Where all really, the like, 1970s acid casualties have gone. <laughs> uh, but yeah, anyway, um, just imagine the interview process, you know. So, uh, so uh, Mr. Nicholas, do you think that there are any limits on love? <laughs> and Mr. Nicholas says, oh, well, there is the matter of yeah, human frailty, of our own personal weakness. And they're like, next, get out. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps i don't know um what we do know is that people feel better when they do helping behaviors but the institute was interested in the physiological changes uh the institute is headed by stephen post and as we all know post makes everything better post rock post metal <laughs> post irony post modernism postman uh that's some classic swan archive there by the way the old hits to be honest i have got an archive of old ideas for jokes it starts with the immortal arg oh, i've got hot lime on my legs which is less of a joke and more of a thing that I said once. <laughs> I mean, it is intrinsically funny. Yes, well, I, I should think so. <laughs> um, uh, at, funny because it, it was true at the time. It is. The, 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 sad, like, the sad thing is that, that that joke about everything is better with post 
was something which we found very funny at the time. But that, I think, is very specific to the fact that we'd been listening to an awful lot of post-rock uh, at the time. Um, <laughs> and therefore, if you haven't, it's not really very funny. Oh, wow. My personal pre- preferred one is Everything's Better with Meta. Um, <laughs> because not only is it true, but it also rhymes. Um, what is it? Uh, oh, there's a phrase. Uh, if it is an uh, if it is a rhyme it is true every time that is not my joke that is someone else's of course joke. i don't know whose joke it is rhyme. <laughs> i do hate rhyme. no rhyme anyway, no reason so, anyway carry on um the, 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 let's talk about science yeah early research into um this sort of physiology of altruism uh found that contrary to expectations mothers with more children did not suffer ill effects they expected at the time that mothers with lots of children would suffer ill effects because of exhaustion but actually um those who uh volunteer more have better health and lifespan which basically teaches us the important lesson that it's really important to ask random and stupid questions in longitudinal studies (laughs) because you might end up with something that you wouldn't have otherwise discovered so if you ben ever do any long-term group integration research be sure to ask questions like what variety of tea do the (laughs) two communities favor because you might discover the secret of happiness they were asking about having children and it turned out the secret to longevity was volunteering that's interesting i mean it's nothing to do with our pet theory that it's possible to become addicted to childbirth um, I wasn't aware that that was a, a pet theory of ours, <laughs> more a feral theory that we saw on the wasteland and felt fondly <laughs> towards, but never went close to because it was too weird. <laughs> it's a theory that keeps rootling around our bins and eating our raw eggs. <laughs> Why do you have to talk about childbirth and raw eggs? <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. Childbirth a, releases a large amount of oxytocin. Oxytocin is a very pleasant chemical to have in the brain. There's a theory so that is completely, completely addicted, addicted to placenta. That's your only problem. <laughs> a what? A what? Oh. Um, <laughs> but yeah, long life is actually linked to low stress. Apparently, the hormones released during stress affect us at the cellular level, uh, degrading our telomeres, which apparently, because I'm not a geneticist, are part of our genes which are key in cell duplication. This is true. I'm not a uh, a geneticist, but I do know that. Um, Anyway, the neurotransmitters that reduce stress are those unsurprising celebrities, oxytocin, the so-called bonding hormone. uh, And uh, oxytocin comes when altruism uh, is face-to-face. So writing a check to charity is, even a big one, is less effective in terms of the release of oxytocin than doing something nice for someone, even if it's something really small. And um, we lie on a spectrum uh, for oxytocin-linked compassion as people. You know, we have differently altruistic personalities. It's suggested by Batson. But oh, I see. Sorry, I, I was confused by the phrase lie on a spectrum. I thought that meant misleading someone as to whether you were gay or not. <laughs> uh, no, uh, I don't know what whether that's an altruistic act. <laughs> um, but no, we... Uh, we fall on a spectrum. You see, it's just too metaphorical. There is a spectrum of the susceptibility to oxytocin-linked compassion, the people who respond best to it. And it was discovered, and I am not sure if Dickens is cited in the paper, by looking at the urine of orphans. <laughs> of course it was. <laughs> I just found that so weird. Why and orphans? I think it's because orphans... You're are... a lot? <laughs> <laughs> 
No, it's to do with their oxytocin is depleted, right? Because they haven't had like bonding relationships with parents as strongly. Mm. So they are often less compassionate in a way mediated by oxytocin. And are more likely to sell their wee. And the best, yeah, they need the money. <laughs> and the best way to te- test oxytocin apparently is by urine testing. I see. The easiest way. Um, so yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, a bit of a Pest is very much a value judgment. <laughs> <laughs> you try sifting through several gallons of <laughs> orphan urine and then tell me that that's the best way. <laughs> <laughs> Would you prefer the blood of orphans? <laughs> that is the alternative. Well, in a way. <laughs> I mean... Like, neither of... It, it's definitely, like, the lesser of two evils. <laughs> uh, anyway, all of that oxytocin stuff is in addition to the baser pleasure systems like dopamine and endorphins, also known as brain heroin. All of these really oppose the stress systems of the brain. So helping each other does reward us by improving our health, our happiness, by reducing our stress. Huh. So that is the kind of chemical side of it. So do good, live longer, which again comes back to true altruism. Can your brain tell when if you're just doing it to improve the quality of your telomeres? I mean, this is really it's really nice research, isn't it? It's telling you, you know, do good things and good things will happen to you. You do kind of wonder whether the like negative uh, publication of negative results bias that exists in all of science would be like astronomically exacerbated in this case. If some guy laboring away over a hot beaker of orphan urine (laughs) suddenly discovers that as it turns out, helping people actually decreases your oxytocin and causes, you know, degradation of your telomeres and you live for shorter, you know, there's probably a fairly hefty emphasis on that not to get published. Yeah, I guess that's true. This is the the cynic in me. Yeah, well, maybe. Anyway, one of the most amazing findings by Post goes beyond neurotransmitters. Uh, One piece of research showed students either a video that was a neutral control, they don't identify what it was, or a video about Mother Teresa's work. They then tested the level of protective antibodies found in the blood of these students and found in the group that had just been shown a video about altruism much higher levels of these protective antibodies that lasted for hours afterwards, which is frankly ridiculous, but also pretty cool. (laughs) All the best things are. That's true. I, I quite like it, though. But the thing is, it's, it's, it's fooling the brain. The brain should not be so easily fooled. Just watching a video about Mother Teresa does not make you a good person. <laughs> you know, if I sit down and watch, uh, you know, just like a day's worth of stuff about people doing nice things, then I have wasted a day and not contributed to the good of humanity. <laughs> Um, I guess the human brain isn't necessarily wired to understand television (laughs) as being separate from observing things in real life. But yeah, so we can give you some Psychomedia certified health tips for fighting off colds. One, uh, drink orange juice. Uh, Two, watch videos about people being charitable. Actually, I should just say uh, that is drink orange juice, not orange squash. Um, Or uh, if I didn't mention that, then uh, I'd get in trouble. Oh, really? What? (laughs) Is this some like sad story that you No, need to that share there is a certain group? amount of uh, domestic dispute in the Fell household uh, as to whether uh, vitamin C exists in anything other than vitamin C tablets. Right. But we shouldn't get into this. Carry on with your list. 
<laughs> your family are interesting. <laughs> uh, not the family. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. The fell household. How can it be the fell household and not be the family? I'm confused. Are you married? <laughs> no. Did this happen over the winter and you didn't invite me? Uh, what happens in America stays in America. I'm not sure that's strictly true in international law. <laughs> I'm sure they'd like it to be. Anyway, <laughs> carry on with well, your list of people. before I get uh, in. So, yeah, the, no, my third suggestion is do not listen to me <laughs> when I repeat the assertion made by Charlie Brooker that it's a head in the box at the end of the John Lewis advert. <laughs> uh, that's that's funnier than it should have been. Yeah, I uh, I said that to the uh, curate at my church on Christmas Day morning. Good work. Because uh, there was the, on the laptop screen, I was running all the words for that morning. There was someone had been playing the uh, John Lewis advert. And I was like, oh, the John Lewis advert. Oh, Charlie Brooker ruined it for me. Oh, I better not tell you. And he's like, no, go on, tell me. I'm like, you don't, won't like it. And he's like, oh, oh, I will, tell me. It's like, oh, well, it turns out at the end, it's a dog's head in the box. He's like, that is kind of funny. Oh, a dog's head in a box. Well, I mean, I haven't seen the advert, but I imagine having it's quite a small box it's, oh i see so yeah right that's awesome. but it's also a seven reference so yeah, it could yeah exactly. be uh, gwyneth paltrow's head yeah hey thinking of uh, animals in boxes <laughs> that even wasn't deliberate i swear to you my subconscious is better at writing segues than i am <laughs> well i mean we've already talked about schrodinger's cat and schroder's cat and louis roder's cat so yeah, animals in boxes. Theme of the week. We don't have an episode title yet, as far as I can see. So, <laughs> well, it's either going to be that or Star Wars and orphan urine. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay, writing that one down because I prefer. That. <laughs> oh, we're going to get some great inbound search hits. <laughs> we're going to get some wonderful feedback in about two months. Yep. Anyway, uh, yeah. Um. So. The animal side of altruism. Well, Christmas wouldn't be Christmas without animals, right, would it? Okay. They are like very ask, delicious. A question, yeah. Why don't we traditionally eat beef and donkey meat, given that in <laughs> the tradition of Christmas, those are the animals who are supposed to be in the stable by the manger? Well, that's what I want to know. I mean, we do eat beef, and I suppose that I, I imagine the reason that we don't eat donkey meat um, is uh, the same reason that, according to a farmer friend of mine, we do not eat barnacle goose meat. Um which was that he was instructing us on the best way of cooking a barnacle goose, uh, which according to him was you take your barnacle goose and a house brick and you place them both in the oven for three hours. And then after the three hours, you take them out, you throw away the barnacle goose and you try and eat the house brick. Oh, really? and I imagine it's somewhat cinnamon similar with cinnamon. Wow. I'm really on food now. Uh, it's somewhat similar to a side of delicious donkey. Well, they apparently used to eat them in medieval times when we could afford not to waste animals. Um, but that's the sad thing is because it's so rarely eaten, mm. horse and donkey are only referred to as horse meat and donkey meat. That's the technical term. They don't have a special French inspired name. I spent a long time trying to look for a special French inspired name. <laughs> oh, anyway, fans, we might have had back children's film we've talked before about the varied uses of mice and rats for experiments but apart from rats being in general a lot more capable and complex we didn't look at their characters and uh, barring perhaps wind in the willows and ratatouille and okay so there are a lot of examples of rats being good guys but still <laughs> psychologists did this study wanting to point out that we assume that rats are not good mm. and in a way why should they be 
in general altruism as a biological trait turns up in the higher mammals and humanity's conquest is really more to do with building society and civilization that comes out of not just taking the opportunities for ourselves than kind of anything else yeah, i mean you have to be a little bit careful with that sorry tim because altruism is amongst other concepts that are restricted to the higher mammals like rape well what where am i supposed to go with that also ducks have it so it can't <laughs> Maybe ducks are also altruistic. They do mate for life. I, I think that we're generalising about ducks. <laughs> also, anyway, so I'm humanocentric. Any non-human animals that want to email in and say their species has altruism, I, I, uh, doubt, I doubt we're going to get too many. <laughs> Although, I mean, I suppose maybe it'll turn out that it's in corvids or some other kind of bird, in which case they should contact us on Twitter. <laughs> Sigh. Yeah. So yeah, Mason and Bartlett L. 2011 wanted to break these stereotypes for some reason that I don't know. <laughs> They'd been working in he separate labs. <laughs> They'd be working in separate labs that were next door to each other, but they only met after Bartel had read some of Mason's. And I'm sure that this was for totally scientific reasons and not. Uh, in my original version of this, uh, Bartel is like a young uh, guy, and Mason is a woman who seems attractive on account of her research but actually they're both women and they're both not that young but maybe Bartel did want to you know start up a friendship slash relationship with Mason and that's why they said oh knock knock I've read your research funny I haven't met you before anyway um, you spent all together too much time thinking about that Tim <laughs> it's amazing what happens on first appraisal when I read a story things will pop into my head I have no real reason to do so <laughs> and are completely wrong factually why would I assume that? Like, scientists meet to do science, for the most part. I don't know anyone who's gone into research for the women. <laughs> Man. Do you? <laughs> Chicks dig a PhD, Tim. Well, Struber, but that's about it. <laughs> anyway, um, so what they did was they put two rats in a box. One in a small cage that trapped them, and the <laughs> other one without Gwyneth Paltrow's run head. around. Without what, sorry? With or without Gwyneth Paltrow's head. <laughs> it was a small box uh and i don't think her head is that small okay it's quite small. it's quite small that anyway yeah they put two rats in a box one in a small small cage that completely kind of trapped them in and the other one was in the box but free to run around now the free one did their best trying a variety of tactics to free the other rat because it's a children's film um, <laughs> eventually almost all the rats learned how to free the other rat well 23 out of 30 which is really disappointing for the other seven <laughs> That doesn't make the movie. Hang on, this that's this, too bad. This means that that joke that I made about Schroeder's cat earlier would have been actually accurate if I'd called it Schroeder's rat. <laughs> <laughs> Precognizant puns. Oh yeah. As if you have that power. <laughs> anyway, the controls showed that rats are only interested in freeing another genuine rat. They aren't interested in freeing a plushie that looks like a rat or anything like that. Or just in opening the box because they like opening boxes. <laughs> hey, there might be a present in here. Hammer, hammer, hammer. Oh, it opened. Oh, it's a rat. I don't no, think it even were... needs to be there might be a present in there. Boxes are inherently fun. If you see a box, <laughs> you want to open the box. Unless you're that guy who wrote that song about the box. But anyway, I can't remember who that was. Uh, Tim Vine. Tim Vine. Yeah, Tim Vine wrote a song about not opening boxes. And it's a very good song. Um, yes, it is. But it's clearly not for rats. Uh, yes. Anyway, um, so... They thought that, well, you know, 
maybe rats will free rats if they've got nothing better to do. Let's see what happens if we put in some chocolate with the free rat. Because at this point, you get a number of choices. You get the choice of just eating the chocolate and not freeing the other rat, to eat the chocolate and then free the other rat, because you are a nice rat, but you still love chocolate. <laughs> or finally, to free the other rat and then share the chocolate in a delightful freedom feast. <laughs> and once again, most rats chose the generous option, huh? even to the point that they would bust open the door and then carry the chocolate to the trapped, wow. the formerly trapped rat. That's um, awesome. Intriguingly, um, female rats were a lot better at it than male rats. <laughs> And there's uh, some suggestion um, from the rather more distressing researcher, Mogul, whose research is never going to be adapted into a children's film. (laughs) Mogul created a scale of facial expressions that helps us know how much pain a mouse is in. God. (laughs) Again, afternoon wasted. (laughs) (laughs) But also found that when mice see these uh things and hear distress calls they do try and comfort them just by going and being near them and like i don't know i don't think they put a paw on their shoulder and say they're there <laughs> in mouse but they do go and like go up snuggle next to one them, mouse goes up to the other mouse and just just stares it in the face and squeaks it's not your fault over and over again <laughs> um but uh so he thinks just like uh how do you pronounce the Sith guy's name? Darth what was it? I don't think it was Darth what was it, although that is a really good name. No, Darth, it was like Ciardini, something like that. Oh, Cialdini. 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 Mm. But I think okay, Darth uh, what was it is much better. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, yes. Um, the they, You know, he thought, well, if a rat is trapped in a box, it's going to be squeaking let me out of here you know distress calls and other rats get stressed by hearing distress calls so they only do it to alleviate their own stress Mm. um and uh but he does plan to follow up with mice to see if mice will or can do it or whether mice are just just the you know less friendly and helpful members of the rodent group my prediction they won't be i i I, yeah i doubt they'll help you think that they w- won't help? I think. But they- is it because mice are incompetent, or is it because mice are just cruel? I don't think it's mice are cruel. They're just like not very nice animals. I mean, I I can't rem- I can never remember how much of this we've talked about. But rats are rats are social creatures, and you know, they they will they will fight and make up, and then just like chill out with each other afterwards, and all this sort of thing. Whereas, it, like, if two mice fight, then they then one of them like has to leave the country or something like this. Um, oh, that's interesting. Where, yeah, the mice are solitary and rats are social, and I mean, maybe that's an interesting thing. Maybe you could uh, draw the line not de- uh, of altruism, not by intelligence, but by you know uh, social social tendencies in animals. So you know, if you get solitary but highly intelligent creatures and contrast them with social but highly intelligent creatures, but there are. I was going to say the bonobo ape is a highly social, quite intelligent. Mm. But you, you don't really get, I mean, do you get that many uh, social but solitary animals? I'm trying to um, think. Other than the, like, the, the like roaming about, male chimps and things like that. I was going to say, what about polar bears? They're quite solitary. I imagine they're uh, relatively high on the scale just because they're big. Um, I suppose. Okay, so uh, Tim, you would like to design an experiment in which we test <laughs> altruism in male polar bears. <laughs> 
and not get us all killed. <laughs> well, I suppose there is one advantage of using polar bears in that you don't have to selectively breed them to make them white. <laughs> anyway, um, one thing that Mason and Bartle don't stress that Mogul does to try and criticise their research is that these rodents were raised together. Okay. And the thing that Mason and Bartle want to do next is see what happens if the rodents are strangers. Will a rat bust out anyone, or will it just be a kind of hatchmate buddy? Right. Um, and you know that kind of makes it more complicated maybe there is the kind of selfish genetics issue were they related might they be a bit related or seem related and so from a scientific point of view maybe it doesn't uh say as much as it originally seemed but from a movie point of view that's some pretty great backstory (laughs) you open a cage and it's hey i remember you we grew up together me and those 69 other offspring (laughs) and also incidentally tim i think it's probably brood mates rather than hatch mates i don't wish to alarm you but rats don't hatch (laughs) <laughs> well i mean maybe plans but nothing else this is why i focus on human research you, you never did take that zoology option in the third year did you no because uh well um you were too busy studying human emotion yeah that's basically it <laughs> um and didn't help <laughs> this is true Wow. But yes, it, it, since I summarised that out of a Scientific American article and didn't find the actual paper, that's all I have to say on the matter. Well, that's kind of good. And uh, that's, a, that's a good point to stop, according to my Skype. We've just hit the hour. Uh, Hooray! So this has been a, a surprisingly well-timed uh, podcast, assuming we now don't like witter on for a half an hour about... <laughs> testing polar bears new year new regime i mean i could quite happily talk for a lot longer about the various themes that have emerged the non-psychological themes that have emerged in this podcast because there have been some particularly good ones yeah it's been fun so yeah let's just try and draw some conclusions about altruism it's good it is it's good for you it's good for society assuming it exists or actually well that no that's a good that's a good point isn't it whether or not it exists it is good for us yeah isn't that a bit weird so batson and cialdini all your works are pointless <laughs> but well done for doing them it's good that you've given this to the scientific community because it's an altruistic act and therefore you'll feel better and live longer yeah I guess. um so uh, assuming you're benedict Cumberbatch would wish us all that we lived lived long and prospered <laughs> that's not even like a pair of words what were you trying to go for there I was trying to just say live long and prosper, but <laughs> Came out it was a like kind of conditional case. Someone from Somerset chewing on a bean. <laughs> <laughs> In which case, it's like original Darth Vader. <laughs> right, before Morris I try and do any... This one, ain't it? <laughs> Stroke me down. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm sure someone else has any. made that joke, but anyway. Uh, I think so. As we begin um, on Star Wars, so we end on Star Wars. Thank goodness it is orphan <laughs> urine. Yep. Uh, I guess we should just say goodbye. Happy 2012. It's good to be um, back. Yeah, it's fun to be back and doing a podcast again and not stressful at all. Not in the slightest. Because it was a gift that we give to you. <laughs> and so our stress about doing it has been alleviated. And we will live longer. Anyway, bye for now. Bye. Oh, what's in this in this box? Why, it's a surprise present. The complete Psychomedia box set with every episode, including the Franken podcasts, demi podcasts, and a book of all the show notes.
elsewhere. Aha! I can feel the chemicals moving, the antibodies stirring, the rats freeing each other from boxes in my backpack. My present must have been found. Being altruistic really is worth it. Now I'm hooked up on the potent chemical cocktail of being a good person.